Well, please open your Bibles with me. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, and I have to say, it was a great joy for me to be in chapters 3 with all of you the last couple Sundays. Those were very uplifting and encouraging verses that we studied. And we have to remember, going even all the way back to the start of chapter 2, Paul has essentially been giving a defense of his Christian ministry there in Thessalonica. He was only there for a short season. And as you know, he was run out of town, and he has continued to be falsely accused of, of his motives, his actions. And so for chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he has gone back and recounted what he said and why he did it, what he, why, uh, why he said the things he did and why he did the things that he did. And uh, he's given much detail in all of this. He has proven himself to be an example to this church family during persecution. He proved to them how deeply he loved them and longed to be back with them so that they could be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. As you know, he sent Timothy on a short mission to check on them, to find out about their faith. And now that Timothy has returned... Now that Paul knows they are indeed standing firm, he now lays out some very practical teaching here in chapters 4 and 5. He step by step walks them through ways they can increase and abound in their love for God and others. How they should grow in their walking in a manner worthy of the God who called them into His own kingdom and glory. I trust that these words will be highly instructive and inspiring for us today. Now, I'll also say that I have um, been incredibly pressed for time over these past weeks. I mean, who isn't? Um, So it caught up with me a little this week, and I don't have a detailed outline on the screen on the PowerPoint today, but I will have our texts, the texts that we'll be walking through. And of course, you've got the uh, assault starter, the group discussion questions there in your bulletin to refer to. So let's begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more 
and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. This is the instructional Word of God. May we hear it and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words. These words that Your Spirit spoke to us and all believers of all time through the pen of Paul. We ask again as we ask every week, Lord, that You would be the one who teaches us today. Give us the understanding that only Your Spirit can give. And may it be accompanied with the grace to honor Your Word. We are followers of Christ. Let us be that, not in word only, but in deed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, Paul has turned a corner here for sure in the direction of his text, and he has wasted no time putting the pedal to the metal in this teaching and exhortation. He has hit in these verses on four aspects, four behaviors of Christian sanctification. Let's work our way through the verses and learn from them. Verse 1 again says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You've heard me mention this many times, that the deeper I study into the Scriptures, the more I marvel at their simplicity and straightforwardness. This verse teaches us one of the grandest truths in all of Christianity. We learn here in very few words that one of the chief goals of the Christian is to simply please God. To bring Him pleasure. To satisfy His desires, whatever they are. This truth is so incredible. We're going to mine for gold for a little bit in this text. This idea of pleasing God. I love the way Thayer's Greek Bible Dictionary defines the word please. To accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. Wow! To accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. As believers, our life mission is to accommodate God. Just let that sink in for a moment. Strong's Dictionary defines the word please this way, to be agreeable. In very practical terms, here's what that looks like. Yes, Lord. Two words define with laser precision the life that is pleasing God. Yes, Lord. You're right, Lord. Your word is truth. Your word is my truth. I agree with it, both in my mind and in my walk. Yes, Lord. That's what it means to please God. And to better grasp how appropriate and applicable these definitions are, 
We need to recognize that pleasing God is nothing like pleasing oneself or even others. Think on this. Satisfying His desires and bringing Him pleasure rests on an entirely different plane than that of satisfying oneself or even others around us. This is because God's desires, what brings Him enjoyment and fulfillment and gratification, are only those things which are pure and right and holy. His desires are intrinsically and entirely good. There is not one sliver of evil in any of them. On the other hand, you and I don't have to think long and hard on this point to acknowledge that the pleasure we receive from eating the second donut or the third, that pleasure was probably not totally pure. That gratification we received from looking at another person lustfully was far from holy. While some of our pleasures are indeed founded in righteousness because of the work of God's grace in our life, we know that not all of our pleasures are holy and pure. But with God, every pleasure of His is right and completely deserving of being fulfilled. And Paul is quick to point out, he's quick to point out that the, our pleasing God is not just accomplished in what we believe or in what we read or in what we say, but actually in how we, what does the verse say? Walk. You know the word for walk. It's used often in the New Testament. It refers to a person's life walk our behavior, our manner of living, our entire lifestyle. And Paul says, all of it needs to simply please God. Not just on Sundays, not just when others are watching, etc. This point of pleasing God is one of the simplest and yet most profound and impactful on Christian living. If you and I will wake up in the morning and intentionally, through the Word of God and through the prayer of our heart, turn our focus on how we ought and might please God rather than self. That prayerful intention will dramatically set the course of our day. Who of us walk, wakes up every morning and says, God, help me to please you more than myself? I dare say that most of the troubles I experience are not brought about by the devil, as much as I would love to blame him, but rather by my own inclination to please myself over my wife, my children, my co-workers, over the word and will of God himself. The sad state of humanity is that we don't even have to try to please self. And yet it takes Herculean divine power to shift that sense of self-satisfaction, self-preservation, self-comfort and pleasure to others and ultimately to God Himself. It takes divine power to do that well. So how then does one please God? 
at risk of oversimplifying practical theology, I refer you to verse 1 of chapter 4 here. What does Paul say to do? Follow the instructions. Read the Bible, obey the Bible. Yes, Lord. There is an extensive list of thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, and sacred duties that are given to God's people throughout all the pages of Scripture, especially the New Testament. Those that relate to our manner of living under the new covenant, the salvation of Jesus Christ. Read and obey. That is how we please God. It's why we must regularly, personally, privately, corporately engage in the serious study of the Scriptures. We cannot know the instructions if we do not read them. Men, do we even have to go here? (laughs) We cannot know the instructions if we do not read them. Last couple of phrases of verse 1 there. He says that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. Paul, again, is a master encourager. He said, just as you actually do walk. Sometimes in our exhortation, our teaching, especially as parents, but in so many areas of life, We fail to sincerely and passionately say, you really are doing a good job. I want you to know I see the progress you're making. I'm so proud of you because I see you're trying to do the right thing. Instead, without even saying it, don't we sometimes communicate, you failed again? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Can't you ever get it right? We skip the encouragement, as we studied just a few weeks ago, and we go straight to the charge. Fathers, this is a devastating mistake to make with our sons and daughters. We often don't make it intentionally But that does not mean the mistake has not been made. We need to intentionally encourage, reflect upon the patience of God in our own lives. He is loving and kind. His mercy is new every day. The patience of God should radiate from us. Can you imagine the smile that came across that little congregation in Thessalonica when they heard the words of the Apostle Paul, you actually are pleasing God. I see it. I recognize it. I thank God. What we see is that is the gas for the engine in the next verse, the next phrase, that you excel still more. This isn't the last time we'll see that word excel in this letter. Excel is defined this way in a dictionary. To superabound, to be abundant, to be the better, 
enough and to spare, exceed, increase, redound, remain over and above, overflowing to make excellent. This is the lifelong journey of striving more and more to please God. Going higher, going further, increasing, abounding still more and more and more and more. The question is not, am I pleasing God? The question is, am I pleasing God excellently and increasingly? That silences the notion that any of us are doing a good enough job, doesn't it? Satisfaction on our part is nothing more than complacency. Paul says to these believers who are doing an exemplary job to all of the churches, he said, you need to excel still more. And look at how he continues this thought. Verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We have to appreciate Paul's forthrightness. He immediately squelches the excuse, but we don't know how to please God. We don't know what God wants. He says, you know. You're holding the instructions in your hands. And not only that, we gave you the commandments by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, this isn't our opinion. This isn't our doctrine. This isn't our good idea for moral living. This is the message that the Lord Jesus Christ authoritatively gave us to authoritatively give to you. Paul now patiently reminds and teaches them again how they ought to please God. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, as many of you know, is the big fancy theological word for holiness, purity, consecration, being set apart only for God's service, to be fully devoted. And when you study and think on this for a bit, you realize that sanctification is tied inseparably to the idea of being agreeable and accommodating to God. We often overcomplicate the will of God, don't we? We assume it to be some futuristic, unattainable, ambiguous plan for all the world. And maybe there's a little bit of plan in there for my life too. That is so far from the truth. One of the crystal clear truths that we find in Scripture for the will of God is personal holiness. Daily, ongoing, increasing, excelling sanctification that Old Testament, Old Testament idea of cleansing and dedication for temple service only. Think about that. Do you and I consider ourselves as being for temple service only? The priest didn't use that spoon or knife in the sacrifice, sacrifice process and then take those utensils home and work in his garden with them. He didn't prune the shrubs with that knife. That would have desecrated the utensils. The will of God for you and me is that we be used only for temple service, 
for the kingdom work. Isn't that an awesome picture? That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart. What a high calling. God's will is that we be sanctified more and more. Increasingly holy. Set apart from ungodliness to godliness. Paul goes on now in verses 3-7 to to teach three specific behaviors of sanctification. We have to appreciate the clarity with which he teaches. He doesn't just wave the banner, got to be holy. We all know we need to be sanctified, so go do it. He teaches with clarity three specific behaviors of sanctification. The first is physical purity. Verse 3, that is, speaking of sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man to transgress, that is to sin, and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger at all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. These are words that every God-fearing follower of Christ pours over their life. You see, to the person who doesn't know God, they do what they want. This is understandable. They do what pleases themselves. But for the Christian whose life calling is to please God according to the will of God, they take these biblical truths, this set of physical purity filters and they use it to instruct their life, their relationship life, their pre-marriage habitation choices, their choice for pre-marriage abstinence, their choice for marriage fidelity, all for no greater reason than they simply want to please the God who saved them. They want to please God more than their own strong physical desires. They abstain from sexual immorality. It's important to note that the Greek word here used for sexual immorality is porneia. And that refers to everything, every relationship, every behavior that does not align itself with the mandates of Scripture. Speaking specifically, the man-woman marriage covenant ordained of God for mankind. This porneia is speaking of all immoral behavior. Why does a follower of Christ deny and defy the lustful passions that tempt them? Because they know that to fulfill those desires is to not walk in a manner worthy of the God who called them into His own kingdom and His own glory. 
as the Apostle Paul teaches here, to engage in sexual immorality is to act like an unbeliever, a godless person. The believer understands and recognizes through truths like this in Scripture that immorality is not only sin, it is sin against another person. Paul uses the word to transgress against, to defraud someone. This is the Greek, Greek word, pleonectio. And it means to be covetous, to overreach, to take advantage of another, to make gain. There is the idea here of taking something that does not belong to you. To rob another person in order to get what is not rightfully yours. This is dishonest gain. Why should we never rob another person of their physical purity, even if they consent? Verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Why was Paul saying it again now? Because it continued to be a struggle in the church. God's people continued to wrestle with this specific temptation. It was real. It was alive. It was affecting people. This was a problem in the church. It's always a temptation in the church. So Paul solemnly warns them again. If a person sins physically against another and takes what God has deemed to belong only to the wonderful marriage covenant relationship. The sin is not just between two people either. God now personally gets involved. At some point, He executes vengeance on the offending parties. The verse says, the Lord is the avenger. Christian friend, you and I should be far more interested and concerned with the vengeance of God upon immoral persons than we are some film that might have happened to have come out last week. A modern dictionary defines avenge this way, to inflict harm in return, to exact retribution, that is, to pull it out, to exact retribution, to exact, listen to this, to exact satisfaction for. It satisfies God to punish immorality. It pleases Him to cause due pain in return for what He has determined to be the sin of sexual immorality. Paul says, we solemnly warned you. And Paul caps this solemn instruction and command and warning by essentially saying in verse 7, this is what it means to excel in sanctification. This is what it means to live in God's will. Physical purity is God's calling for your new Christ-like life. You weren't saved to then live like the unsaved. And in verse 8, he points out, that to re, points out that to reject the life of purity and to choose a life of sexual immorality is to reject God Himself 
Specifically, God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That's referring to the rejection of the God who saved you. Who made you His own temple. Paul says, how could we reject that person? That Spirit given to you is the one who actually frees you from the power of sin and temptation. Don't reject the Spirit. Don't reject God Himself. We learn in this passage that sin is way more than just sin. That relationship is not between only you and the other person. God is in the midst of it. Sin affects everything. Friends, when it comes to your and my physical purity, both in thought and act, as Christ so clearly teaches, we must remember that choosing abstinence before marriage is choosing God. We must remember that choosing purity in marriage is choosing God. It is so much more than simply valuing our spouse. As wonderful and treasured as that relationship is, purity is a God thing. It is a God relationship. Do you think it was by draw the hat that Paul addressed first this topic of physical purity when he defined sanctification? Surely this was not by chance, but by inspiration of God Himself based on what is so important to the heart of God. So much more could be said on this subject but let us simply purpose to obey God in these matters. Must one have the issue of moral purity explained over and over again? How much convincing must one need? How much explanation, how much reasoning must we be given before we simply say, yes, Lord, your pleasure over mine. Moral purity is a huge part of excelling in holiness. It is sanctification. Verse 9, Paul moves on to his next aspect of excellent sanctification, which is love for your church family and all believers. Verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. It's interesting, he doesn't say, because you're already doing it. I mean, he does go there eventually. But why is it, you don't need us to continue to explain this concept to you. What does the verse say? For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Well, as a reminder, it's not just about your church family. It's all of God's people. He says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. We've spoken much on the love of the brethren these past few weeks as we've studied all of chapter 2 and 3. So for the sake of time, I'll simply highlight two points in this verse. Verse 9 shows us that love is so important to the heart of God that He teaches it to us directly. He is the one who said, 
This is the greatest commandment, to love God with everything you've got, to love others as you would yourself. He impresses this truth upon our hearts. His Spirit takes responsibility. Think about it. His Spirit takes responsibility for producing this particular fruit. It's not by chance that it is listed first in the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Secondly, again, notice and appreciate Paul's encouragement in verse 10. He basically says, you guys really are doing a good job in this, but don't stop. We urge you. I mean, you would think if they're doing a great job, they just need a little bit of encouragement. No, he says, we urge you, we implore you, we press you and push you to excel still more. Verse 11, Paul moves to his third aspect of excellent sanctification. And that is, this is an interesting one, a quiet life. Verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders, that would be unbelievers, and not be in any need. That phrase, to lead a quiet life, could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. This is one place where it is especially helpful to cross-reference, particularly Paul's second letter to this same body of believers on this same topic. Because in Paul's second letter, he addresses this same issue with a lot of clarification. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 15 for the rest of our time. We're going to spend a little bit of time here because this third aspect of sanctification has big time, real world instruction for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. Now we command you, again, notice the seriousness of the charge here, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, what we are about to say bears the weight and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, we command that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. That phrase alone there, to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, speaks sharply against the incredible idea of tolerance that is being touted by the church today. Almost anything goes in the church in the name of grace and love. We must understand that biblical grace and love includes what we are reading right here in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Notice Paul is getting very personal here. Follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor <clears throat> and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, Paul could have requested and even demanded missionary support. This was the work of God. They were called to be a part of it. He says, not because we do not have this, the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
Let me just quickly interject. We all have the responsibility to be that example. Every one of us, paid staff or not, have an example to do everything possible, not to be a burden, to go above and beyond the call of duty, to personally sacrifice and volunteer of our time. This is the picture, and Paul says, we were doing this for you. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. It says it like it is. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. Not, uh, he said, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. We need to recognize that Paul is clearly addressing unruly, undisciplined, freeloading, lazy, burdensome, refusing to work busybodies in the church. These people are unruly troublemakers. And to them, Paul gives the orders, verse 10, and the command and exhortation in verse 12 to shape up, to develop some discipline, to get a job, earn some money, stop being a burden, and stop gossiping. To these people, he says, give your mouth a break and put your hands to work. He said in verse 12, work in quiet fashion. This is interesting. He is so concerned that even when they get a job, there'll be gossips and troublemakers there too. Work in quiet fashion, he says. Mind your own business. Eat the food that you earned with your own labors. This is godliness. This is the will of God. This pleases God. 1 Thessalonians 4, where we were, Paul said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And in the context of 2 Thessalonians, this text we're in right now, we see that he's clearly not saying, be a hermit. Keep to yourself. Don't talk to people. Isolate yourself. Do your own thing. Stay low-key in the church. That doesn't jive with everything he has just exhorted and commanded and taught in chapters 2 and 3 of the book we've been studying. You know, Paul was a fireball for Christ. This live a quiet life is in reference to the opposite of everything bad he saw happening in the church. Loudmouths, busybodies, wild troublemakers, etc. And Paul says, don't just give this quiet life a try. Don't just give it a little effort. Make it one of your top life goals. He uses that incredible word. You need ambition in this area. We can't help but note the change in tone all of a sudden in verse 13. He says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. That's an exhortation worth keeping on the bathroom window or the dash of the car. Don't grow weary in doing good. He did not say, don't stop doing what's right. He said, don't even get tired of it. There is tremendous 
real-life counsel in the exact words penned in Scripture. He said, don't even get tired of doing what's right. The attitude, I'm going to do what's right, but I am so tired of doing it, is a dangerous cliff to play next to. Don't even grow weary. Instead, be strong and encouraged. Stand firm. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Yes, of course, our outward body may be perishing, including our emotions, including our mental faculties, but the inward, the spiritual, the faith must be renewed day by day. Stand firm. Paul's exhortation goes a little deeper. He also instructs the church family to stay away from wildly ungodly people in the church. He says in verse 6, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And he clarifies this verse, this thought in verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. That's Paul saying, mark them, identify them, call them out. Again, this, this tremendously challenges the notion in the church that it's none of your business how I live. It's not your right to tell others how to live. You're not the judge, etc. And of course, yes, there is a terribly unbiblical way of doing what Paul is saying in these verses. But there is also a biblical way to do it. Paul says, identify that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Would we all agree those are pretty harsh words? I think we all tremble at the thought of having to do whatever Paul is talking about here. And yet the Scripture is undeniably clear that we have a responsibility here, a Christian duty to identify these people and to identify them for the purpose of disassociating with them and for the purpose of the disassociation bringing its proper and deserved shame upon them. Here's the shame in all of this, though. Many Christians fail to read the next verse. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I'm not sure whether I am more brokenhearted by those who call themselves Christians and live worldly lives or by those Christians who treat bad backsliding Christians like enemies. My heart breaks more over the latter. The damage done by treating a brother or sister in Christ who is weak in their faith like an enemy, the damage done there does not even, is not even closely measured the small amount of damage done when a person personally struggles in their faith. You know why Paul inserted this carefully crafted statement, yet do not regard him as an enemy? Because he knew exactly that's what we would tend to do. Self-righteousness is a deadly Christian virtue. 
There is so much confusion and sadly even misuse and abuse of these verses. First, this order from Paul isn't directed at people who've committed a small sin or even a more significant sin one time. People who are backsliding a little or people who aren't as mature, spiritually mature as we think they should be. This isn't toward people who've offended us once or twice, etc. This is talking about people who call themselves Christians but are living wild worldly, shameful, dishonorable lives, not only in the church, but also in the community. The text teaches all of this. So does 1 Thessalonians. They even have a bad reputation outside the church, as Paul notes in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, don't associate. What is the $10,000 question? What does that mean? How do you do that? Allow me to begin by again noting what Paul did not say. He didn't say, don't talk to them. He didn't say, don't have a meal. He didn't say, turn the other way if you see them coming down the aisle in the grocery store. And the verse certainly does not say, and don't love them. Don't pray for them. Don't reach out to them. Don't serve them. Show me where in the verse or anywhere in the context of this entire passage and book that it says, don't show them kindness. Show me where it says, speak spitefully to and of them. Where does it even imply to let bitterness and disgust grow in our heart toward them as a person? That's what the Pharisees would have done. And sadly, that's what you would think the text teaches when we look at how many Christians treat fellow believers when they fall into sin. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't treat wild sinners that way? You and I would not be here if He did. We know this. The verse says instead, admonish him as a brother. Teach, speak truth as you would to your own brother. Remember, he is your mother's son. She is your father's daughter. You share the same blood. Care for him or her as you would one of your own. Because they are. The natural instinct is to eliminate one's enemies. But the natural instinct is to do also everything possible to restore and protect and cherish a family member. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Look to yourself. Remember where you came from. Remember where you could go so that you too will not be tempted. If the spiritual in the church can be tempted, 
why not have mercy on those who are young or weak in the faith? The verse goes on, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. My goodness, the law of Christ is not often what we think it is. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It is God who gives the increase. The sooner I and we slap that label across our forehead, nothing but redeemed, the sooner God gives increase through us. Let's go back now to today's text as we wrap up. 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And let's make a very important distinction here. Verse 11 and 12 says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's step back for a second and compare that with what we just studied at length in 2 Thessalonians. Paul's first approach at addressing the unruly, the undisciplined, the wild in the church, the lazy hands, the busy bodies, and actually recognize this is not his first approach. This is his second approach in 1 Thessalonians. He already taught them these things when he was with them. And Timothy has now brought back the report that they're still having some problems in this area. Even in Paul's second approach on this matter here in verse 11 to 12, we see that he is actually quite gentle and encouraging in the midst of his imploring, his charge. He didn't step into the scene in 1 Thessalonians with a sledgehammer, calling out the mandate to identify and disassociate. Again, not identify and destroy, but identify and disassociate. That, that wasn't his call here in 1 Thessalonians, second pass over this same matter. He didn't call for them to, now it's time to let the shame of their behavior do its job. No, here in 1 Thessalonians, he came again, very patiently and gently. We don't know how many times he was patient and gentle, loving in his exhortation on this matter. It wasn't until both instructions and ad admonitions were totally disregarded by some and the public testimony of the church had gotten much worse and the issues had erupted and were causing great discouragement in that group of believers, etc. Then Paul took severe measures. Severe actions called for severe, severe measures. But even then, severity demanded what? Brotherly love. Brotherly admonition. Brotherly correction. The reminder that they are family. We are in this together. Because God cared so deeply for our spiritual well-being when we were wildly in sin, we have an obligation to do the same for others. What a collection of truths for us to put into practice today. It amazes me how Paul can say so much in so few words. This is the Holy Spirit at work, that's why. If you peek ahead to verse 13 now, 
You see that Paul's going to totally change direction again, and he proceeds to give one of the New Testament's most exhaustive teachings on the rapture, the return of Christ to gather the saints to himself. We know that Paul has teased us with this topic a few times already in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But now he is going to dive in head first. What encouragement and strength there is to be found in the return of Christ, the rapture. But for today, this has been a pretty strong nuts and bolts text that we've wrestled through. It all boils down to a life of sanctification, of holiness, of simply wanting to please God. Paul says, God didn't call you. He didn't save you so you could go back and live like an unbeliever. Immoral, unloving and uncaring, lazy, gossiping, troublemaking, etc. No, God gave us His Spirit. He didn't just love us. He came into us so that He could enable us to do what we could not do in our own strength. Those passions, especially the physical passions, the words that come so easily out of the mouth that should not come, the Spirit says, I can stop this. That's grace for believers. True moral purity in both body and mind and heart. Christ-like love and care for one another. A hard work ethic a disciplined lifestyle that honors God in the community as well. Controlled tongues, peacemakers, etc. This is what God has called us to. My church family, as I studied on these verses, I found myself very encouraged to see and reflect on the fact that God is teaching and working these wonderful Christian virtues in our church family. I am so blessed and encouraged by you. And many of you would say the exact same things of one another. I want you to know that as a servant pastor in our church family, I see to some degree your godliness. And I am overwhelmingly blessed by what I see God doing in us. But we must excel still more. We are still sinners. There is room for grace to have more of its way. There is room for increase and abound to happen in this place. And a lot of room. This is our calling to sanctification. This is our calling to holiness. We must remember that our testimony and our witness to the outsiders depends upon this to some great degree. This is our life long calling to excellent sanctification. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenge of Scripture. We didn't come to this place to have our ears tickled. We came to this place to find greater life and hope and joy. We came to this place to find more of the fruit of the Spirit. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is so good the thought that it could even get better. Thank you, Lord, for that vision you give us through Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to a life 
of Christ-likeness. What a wonderful calling. But you not only call us to it in every aspect of our living, but Lord, you give us your spirit to do it. Lord, as we read and obey, as our faith works itself into our behaviors, may we look back and all rejoice with great rejoicing at what God has done in this church family. Lord, give us a vision, though, that the sanctification not rest only with us. Give us a burden, Lord, for those who are outside. Give us a burden for those who have wandered, wandered greatly. Lord, may your sanctification, your holiness, your fruit of the Spirit be manifest in them as well. Lord, let our testimonies not hinder the work that you want to do far beyond our own church family. Thank you, Lord, that that work reached us at some point when we were outside the family of God. We rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. May it make a difference in the way we live this week. In Jesus' name, amen.